Hi, everyone. You're listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on WTBRFM Pittsfield with Roberta McCulloch-Dews of the Mayor's Office in the city of Pittsfield. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have with us Carolyn Valley, CEO of Central Berkshire Habitat for Humanity. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Nice to see you again. <laughs> this is so exciting. Oh, it's so exciting. When I first saw you, I said, Carolyn, you've made the switch from your trademark um, coffee. I don't know if I can give the brand, but I would always see you with this large yes, cup of coffee. Yes, always large. Yep. Now you have transitioned to um, a Yeti. Yep. I'm environmentally correct now. Well, good. Yeah. And your Yeti looks really nice. Thank you. I, I do get comments sometimes like, have I put that coffee shop out of business uh-huh. because I don't go there every day to uh-huh. get coffee. I use the pot at home. And oh. so it's, I still do miss her. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, as long as you have your favorite brew and That's it's right. in a nice, attractive cup, yeah, um, very festive. Thank All right, you. Carolyn, it's my pleasure actually to have you here because we go back. Yeah. Um, And I think we'll talk a little bit about that um, just in our conversation today. But for those who may not know, Habitat was founded in 1976, and it has chapters in all 50 states in more than 70 countries. And um, what we know is that the organization has helped more than 35 million people around the world um, to achieve stability and a good quality of life through affordable shelter, right? And that's really the foundation, but there's so much more to Habitat. And in the Berkshires, many of you may know that Habitat has a, um, a presence right here in Pittsfield and a presence in North Adams. But Carolyn, I want to know a little bit more about you right now. Where's your hometown? So it's kind of funny because I moved around a lot as a young person. So I was born in Troy, New York. The first five to 10 years, I was in the Rensselaer, New York area. And then my parents moved to Texas and Arizona and Tennessee. And um, they were chasing after the American dream wow. and always just a little too late for the, the boon. Um, and then we settled back in Columbia County. So um, Berkshires feels very much like home because Columbia County is very similar to to yeah. the Berkshires. And when I got married, we moved to the Albany area, and then it was the Albany area that brought me to Pittsfield. Now, I have to ask, your parents, were they in the military? or Nope, nope. They were just, you know, my mom had worked as a waitress, and my dad was a glazier. He did window oh. glazing. Mm-hmm. And he initially went to Texas because he thought he was going to get a job on the Astrodome. Okay. I think that's the name of the place, but not thinking ahead that those jobs were all taken by then. So when he got there, he was working in a gas station Mm -hmm. and my mom was pregnant for my youngest sister. Mm. So she was, you know, working in a restaurant again then. So. So I have to ask you, moving around so many times, how did that make you feel as a child? I think that's, and it, it's so funny that it did not occur to me till just a few years ago, like how ingrained and how important housing is to me as a human being. Mm-hmm. Like everybody always goes, oh, Carolyn, she's so passionate about Habitat. But I made the connection finally that not having that stable place to call home affected my stability, my feeling of safety and comfort, not even being able to have like long-term friends. You know, like it wasn't until I was a teenager that I had a best friend because we were always moving and not knowing like, where are we going to sleep? What is it going to be like? So when I'm working with community members, I can totally relate to Mm -hmm. that feeling of, not having and not knowing like this is a place that I can call home. 
Yeah. It's, yes, like a nomadic experience. Yeah. And I, I could only imagine. And of course, we, we, you know, you people had pen pals back then. It was like, yep. if, you, if you make a friend with someone, you're like, okay, we'll keep in touch. We'll write letters. But yeah, it's, it's almost like goodbye. Yeah, it is. It's goodbye. So what brought you to the Berkshires? So I was lucky enough to be working in the Albany area for Petruca Communications. Mm-hmm. And I was an outgoing salesperson. And one of the things that I had done is I would call my customers back right after I would make a sale and find out what how their experience was. Frankly, I'll be honest, that was to get more leads for additional sales. But what I was hearing was that there were problems. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, great. Let me know what they are so we can fix them. So I would work with the tech department to let them know, hey, we're having a problem here. Mm-hmm. And what we found was I had a huge retention rate for all of my customers because I was doing basically outbound customer service. Right. And from that, when they started seeing that data, they're like, wow, this is something new and different. And would you come and run the Massachusetts division and New York State division for an outbound, well, the whole customer service department? Wow. So I was like, I don't know. And then I was like, yeah. I took a couple of drives over here. Yeah. And Pittsfield felt like Mayberry, but with an urban city. Like, we didn't lock our doors when we first moved here. Mm-hmm. What it year just, did you move here? I moved here in 1987. So okay. I've been here 34 years. So wow. I really think of Pittsfield. I mean, I don't live in Pittsfield right at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I think of Berkshire County as my home. home. And I felt like, oh, my gosh, this is... Like, this is the perfect place to be where you have the amenities of a small city, mm-hmm. but you still have, like, close personal relationships. Yes. And you can make an impact. You can have a difference. So I felt like coming home here when I moved to the Berkshires. That's interesting. Did you not um, experience the same thing back when you were in New York? Well, in so we had moved to Schenectady, which okay. is um, we lived down by Union College. I was, like, 25 back then. I mean, we had one daughter. And and I worked a lot, you okay. know, much like now. Yeah. So it was like work, the baby, and all right, going to the grocery store. But you didn't, like, run into people that you knew at the grocery store. Right. You know, it wasn't like making connections because right. it was a revolving area. And I didn't feel like we were part of the neighborhood or right. really had built the only, like, I'm going to call cohort family mm-hmm. were my workmates. Right. So, like, that was... That was our ecosystem. So moving here, it was like, I think within two weeks of getting here, I would run into like the same four people in the market. (laughs) And jokingly, we always say now, like, I have to go very late at night or very early in the morning because I will be at the market for two hours chatting with people. And I love, I mean, I love it. You're a people person. Yeah, but people waiting to eat at home, not so much. They're like, are you coming with the pizza? We're hungry. That's right. Can you bring that chicken home, please? Um but but I, I do. I'm a people person, and, and I love to, you know, see the people in the neighborhood and in and, and the community and find out what's going on with them and the good and the bad. Well, considering that you have said all that, I'm not surprised because your personal credo is, I want to see the human condition improve and willing to do my part to make change happen. And I think it's such a simple but powerful mantra. Was this always something that you adhered to? And you mentioned something a little bit earlier about just living sort of the nomadic experience. Mm -hmm. That could have helped to inform this, but I don't want to assume. So were there any other factors that define this for you? Well, I would say I, from the time I was five till I was 10, I lived with my 
paternal grandparents. And my grandfather was amazing. And he would say, you are smarter than you know you are. You are going to be one of the people that changed the world. And I still get a little choked up when I think about it. And anytime I would come to him with an idea or something, he'd be like, yes, yeah, that would work. That would be great. And he had a vision for me that fueled my vision and was like, I can make a difference. Like, yeah. Yes, I'm, I mean, at that point, I'm 10 years old. But I was like, yeah, like, yeah, I can do this. I can where I see like my first hero was Perry Mason. OK, because, you know, I'm dating myself. But Perry Mason was the, the defense attorney that would be defending everybody who thinks they're guilty. And at the last minute would yes. find the real criminal and they would all go free. So for many years, I thought I was going to be an attorney. Like, yes. that's who I wanted to be was the uh-huh. female version of Perry Mason. <laughs> and but I've always felt like that when I see that there's an opportunity where lending a hand or mm-hmm. lending a voice or lending um a connection yeah. sometimes, like that's not a lot of a lift right. for somebody to do. And and I'm a models person. So if you ever come in my office, you'll see like if your dreams aren't if you're not scared by your dreams, they're not big enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that I do. But um, the one that hangs on my wall at home is that you always leave a place better than you found it. Now, I want to go back to your grandpa for a second, because mm-hmm. I feel like especially sometimes we don't hear stories about um, men empowering their daughters or their granddaughters. Mm-hmm. What was it in his life that made him such a strong supporter of you? Were there influences or factors that you remember? I think it's because he only had sons. Oh, So I think having a, a granddaughter and the first granddaughter um, really, like, I will say I was sort of a little princess at the time. <laughs> so he, I think he just really enjoyed that. And he was always a person that believed that you can. He was he was very interested in politics and he was very interested in social consciousness. And he really would always say, like, people get it done, right? Like, right. systems don't get it done. People get it done. So he, and he just always made me feel like I could do anything. Very revolutionary thinking for I the know. time. And it was funny, you know, because he worked on, he was a train conductor on a railroad. Yeah. And um, he would very often allow me to go with him to the uh, New York City train station. Yep. And that was when escalators were first installed there. Oh. So he would allow me for to the ride whole day, it. right up and down. I still love escalators. <laughs> and um, he would say, like, when you get to the top of the stairs, look around. There'll be something that you can see that you want to be a part of. I mean, just like this whole thinking of broadening my vision for myself. Right. And I think about, like, how important that is, is to have people walking ahead of you that sees, like, hey, I see something more in you than you see in yourself. So powerful, Carolyn. And, And that's like our financial coaching program. That's what we talk about all the time. It's like, I see something wonderful in you. And sometimes people will be like, if you ask them a question, tell me three things that are great about you. Right. And there will be this long, incredible pause. And you're like, I'm willing to wait. Right. And I remember the first time I worked with somebody at Habitat. And I said, tell me one thing, just one thing. And she said, I have nice hair. Mm-hmm. I was like, you're right. You do have nice yeah. hair. Let's put it on our Post-it. Right. And we made all these Post-its. <laughs> and um, I said, I see you have a beautiful smile, too. And I see. And then she's like, do I really? I'm like. 
yes, you do. Yeah. And she ended up leaving that session with 17 Post-its. And she, her assignment was to put them on all the walls mm-hmm. and mirrors around her house. So the first thing she saw when she got up was something great about herself. And the last thing that she did was, I am worthy, I am beautiful, and I can change the world. Caroline. And she has that on a mirror. Oh, my gosh. There's something so amazing about affirming words, affirmations, actually seeing it. Yeah. I think it's the same power that goes into vision boards yep. and why it's important to actually, like if you have a vision, if you have something, put it down, yeah. have it in front of you because there's something, and I don't know the whole psychological reasoning behind it, but the connection between seeing the words, seeing the images and making that connection with yourself to say, that's me yeah. and that's who I am and I can be great too. And the fact that your grandfather um, realized that he was lifting you up and affirming you because he knew that you would need it one day. Mm-hmm. But he did it in such simple ways yeah, that at the really time great. you probably wasn't like, okay, my grandfather is like affirming me and lifting me yeah. up. No, he's telling me to ride the escalator to the top. That's right. And look and around have fun. and have fun. Yeah. But there was a lesson in it. Yep. So that was amazing. I want to talk a little bit now about your work with Habitat. Mm-hmm. And we know that, um, you know, Habitat is very community focused, community driven. You've been with the organization for 14 years. Um, and prior to coming to Habitat, I know you worked in the realm of housing, of course, continuing the path of just your interest and your mm-hmm. passion. You worked on the funding side of things. When you um, moved to Habitat, did you consider this a natural transition or was there a shift that you had to make? So it's really, I've been really blessed in my life and I'll just say I'm 62. So I've only had one bad job in my entire life. Like there's always been um, something about a job where I felt I could make a difference and and enjoyed it. Um, And with the mortgage company that I was with, I got to work with people on helping them realize their dreams of homeownership. I would do a lot of credit counseling. I was an underwriter so I could see like, hey, your ratios are too high or you need some financial education Mm -hmm. or whatever. So I was accustomed to doing all of that. But at the just before I came to Habitat, I was in the middle of a tra- uh, divorce, and I had made a list of like, okay, what do I want to do now? Like, what is the legacy I want to leave behind at this opportunity mm. to transition? And I made the list of it, and the very next day, the ad for Habitat came in the came out in the Eagle. Wait a second. So you made the list, put it on the fridge because mm-hmm. you got to see it to believe it, and put it on the fridge the very next day. And that's when everybody just read the eagle in the paper, right? Not online. So I get the paper. I'm going through it. I'm like, oh, my God, look at this job. And people are, like, calling me up on the phone going, hey, did you see Habitat's looking for? (laughs) And they're like, you would be perfect for that. And I'm like, I know I would. Right. And then I didn't get a call. Yeah. And I was like. Wait, did you go for an interview? No, I didn't even get a call for an interview initially. And because, you know, they were all volunteer organization back then. And I was like. Are you kidding me? Why would they not have called me? Yeah. And I had a friend that worked at Mass Hires. I'm like, is there an invisible typo that I made? Like, did I do something? And I brought it to her and she goes, I know what's wrong. And I said, what? What did I do? She said, you were the vice president of a mortgage company. In their mind, that equals a certain economic status. You are going to work for a small nonprofit. Right. The difference in income is huge. Right. And I was like, oh, never thought about that. So I wrote back again with my resume and said, if that's the only reason you didn't call me, that shouldn't be the reason you didn't call me. Okay. Let's let's look at what we can do. So together. they thought you were overqualified. They thought I was overqualified and that I couldn't. They couldn't afford me. Mm-hmm. 
And so I like the very next day I get a call and they're like, yeah, you were so far above the other applicants and blah, blah, blah. And we'd love to interview you. And I said, OK, fine. And I said, how many people will be at the Oh, the entire board. <laughs> so I was like. Okay, great. So, and I, you know, I'm a, a faithful person, and I just said, if this is what I'm supposed to do, right. it'll work out, and I'll do it. So, I go into re- to meetings and um, job opportunities, just thinking like, if I'm the right person, it'll happen. If I'm right. not the right person, well, that's okay too. And I went in, and so I, you know, you do your due diligence, you're checking the website. I walk in, and I'm like, oh. I didn't expect to see all of you here. And they're like, why? I said, because only three of you, none of you are listed on the website as being on the board. <laughs> so I'm guessing that would be the first thing we'd have to do is work on the website. Right? And they were like, who's interviewing who here? <laughs> and we just fell into rhythm. Right. And um, we were lucky because the city had rented us space mm-hmm. at the, what we call now the Community Resource Center of the West Side. Um, and we had a little tiny room. And the board president at the time brought me over and he's like, you know, if we want to, you know, if you want to go to a, a different place, we could move and whatever. And I, I said, well, let's go in. And I walk in and Roberta, there's like in this little tiny room, there's four desks and there's so many filing cabinets and there's files like up to the ceiling and there's dust and, and but there was a phone and a chair. So yeah. that's good. And I said, well, how much are we paying for this yeah. spot? And he told me, and I was like, yeah, we're staying here. And I jokingly said, and someday we'll just own the place. Right. And we do. Nice. So, yeah. So, um, and, and what makes me so proud about that is the community advocated for, for us to win the RFP to host wow. the community resource center over there. Amazing. You know, it's so important that people understand the history of organizations because sometimes they see the end result. They see the glory. Yeah. And they don't realize that it had to start somewhere, small beginnings. But Habitat just has made a tremendous, tremendous impact. Um, And we're going to talk more about that. But Mm -hmm. I want to just, every time I get an email from you, Carolyn, in your signature, beside the, 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 the letter CEO, it says Chief Visionary Servant Leader. I have a pretty good guess, but I want to know what does this title mean to you and how does it impact your leadership style and the work that you've done over time? So the chief visionary really goes into the system that we had tried to work through called traction. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really identifies what people's natural gifts are and kind of putting you in the right lane. So everybody who knows me always says, oh, you're a visionary. They can see the big picture, but I'm also somebody that will get down in the trenches. I don't ask my people to do anything I wouldn't do do myself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I take a a turn at cleaning the bathrooms just like they do. Um, So that's a a big and important thing for me is that we grow together. And the servant leadership is really about putting people first. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Habitat does. And I know that that's what all of my staff do. And really building people up, like that's really an important part of servant leadership is that my goal is that when we, especially if we have young people that start with us, is making sure that they have all the tools to like move on to their next job. Um, Not that I want any of my people to leave. I love them all. But we've had young people that, you know, like Habitat was not going to be their end game. But like we have one that's out in Boston that had worked for Tricia Farley Bouvier after mm-hmm. she left us. And I was like, what What do you need to get there to your next thing? And like making sure that people have those tools and resources and encouragement is super important. Yeah. And, and that's what fuels me. Like um, jokingly, they're like, the more 
you know, the bigger you get, the less time you'll get to be with people. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to like that so much. So I hear that. And I'm like, you know, you're actually right. Like, I feel a loss Mm -hmm. when I don't get to ever if I don't get to meet a family or if I don't get to be one on one with a donor. So I was like, that doesn't mean I have to I can still do what I'm good at, Mm -hmm. but I can build in those moments of being with them because for me. The work that I do is only good when it's informed by the people I'm working with. Right. And Habitat's about working with, not working for. Like, we create partnerships. I mean, our originator, our origin of Habitat is with Millard Fuller. And he would say, people don't need case managers. They need coworkers. They don't need somebody telling them what to do. They need access to resources, mm-hmm. and which is so resonant and so powerful today. And I think, like, the best things that we put together are when we're working and designing it with the people that are going to be the end users. Or sometimes it's just thinking about, like, you know what, that was such a bad idea. Right. Like, thank God they were at the table and said, yeah, not a good idea. Nobody's going to do that. And we scrap it. And then we go, well, what could it look like? What could it be? So that's all about being servant leadership in the community, in the organization. Um, I'm really lucky that I have a board that – recognizes that the most important thing that we do is the things that we do in community and do with others. Well, I think in in terms of just generous, um, in terms of your capacity to encourage your team for professional development and not and, and wanting them to bloom and grow and knowing that they can or, or might move on, but you still allow that, right? Yeah. Because you know that it's just the right thing to do. Exactly. Like we have a, a young man that um, started with us in resource development and he had gotten a degree in, in creative writing. And he would always, I would be like, okay, creative writing, like should they also have not taught you like business writing and mm-hmm. all of this other kind of writing? Um, and we're working on a project today, one day together. And I was like, do you recognize like how incredible you are with numbers? And he was like, yeah, I kind of like numbers. And I was like, it's more than just liking numbers. You are phenomenal with numbers. Have you ever thought about going into the accounting or the finance world? Because that's where numbers live, right? Yeah. And he was like, hmm, let me think about it. And he came back. He's like, yeah, actually, I, I do think. And I said, well, okay, here's the pathway. If you can go and take, we use QuickBooks. Yep. If you can get certified in QuickBooks, then you can move into this. And and for us, here's a pathway that you would, for a small nonprofit, this would be the pathway of how you would get there. And I could see five years from now, you could be the finance manager. Wow. Um, and he went and got certified. He's our bookkeeping and does amazing accounting stuff with us. But he's working underneath our accountant. And, you know, someday she's going to retire. Um, so she's been, like, saying, okay, here's the other things that you're going to need to right. do to build it. And we're incredibly proud. And I keep thinking to myself, oh, he's going to be so marvelous. He's going <laughs> to leave me. But when he came in and had the Habitat logo tattooed to his arm. Did he? Yeah. I mean, it makes me teary thinking about it. So he's – and I don't even have that. As much – you know, I, I do have – I do jokingly say I wear a banner that says Miss Habitat on it. But I don't have any tattoos, certainly not one that – and it's like this big. It's it's what? like five inches big. So I'm pretty sure, like, well, his he's love, all in. his love runs deep. His love – yeah. And was willing to take the pain of a tattoo. But, wow. Yeah. That's a first. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I was so I was like speechless, and you know how hard it is right. for me to be speechless. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that you know, Carolyn, that speaks to one. I mean, obviously, he made this decision to get this tattoo on his body forever. Yeah. Um, but it speaks to his love of the organization and his love for his team. Yeah. And the fact that if that wasn't present, I'm sure he probably wouldn't have gotten a tattoo. I'm thinking not. You know, so yeah. obviously, I mean, something led him to make such a uh, a permanent decision. And again, it speaks to the culture. I always go back to it. The culture of an organization is so important. Mm-hmm. It makes or breaks an organization. Okay. And, you know, when a lot of times when people are leaving jobs, they not, they're not leaving because of the job itself. They're leaving because of the culture. Yeah. So it's so important to have a strong culture. So I just want to go into some good news, Carolyn. Yes. Sorry, I'm <laughs> knocking things over, over that, here. That, that's okay. It's a pretty big mic. <laughs> um, but there was some good news that we just saw um, in the paper recently. And um, there has been an expanded collaboration between Habitat for Humanity and the Annie Selkie companies. And so it's really awesome. Fantastic news. Mm-hmm. But this partnership was born out of a one-time donation of a million dollars in goods Um, that the organization um, had donated to Habitat in the spring to help mitigate the cost of like building supplies and also the whole supply chain um, issue. One, I just have to ask you, when you learned that you were getting this donation, what was the very first thing that came to your mind? Actually, I said, thank God. And I'll tell you the background story of this. Mm -hmm. So Ann Selke in Pinecone Hill has been supporting Habitat for like seven years. Okay. So every time, just before a house dedication, they will take a family and let them come and do a personal shopping day. Now, that's not something that they gained publicity for, anything like that. They just did it because they felt it was the right thing to do. And imagine for a family that, you know, has really struggled to be able to go into a place like Ann Selke and have the highest quality goods right. and say, here, take right. your pick. And they've been doing that for every house. Every, every house. house. Yeah, every house. And we're, we're building like five and six a year now. So, so, that, that, so we've had that relationship with them. So then we get a call just – so back up. Just before the call came in, I was having a staff meeting, and I said, okay, we, you know, we're about a month out before our year end because we end June 30, mm-hmm. and some of our goals, we're just not going to be able to make them. Like, it, it's just not possible. The restore had to close. Uh, traffic, foot traffic had gone down because of COVID. Yeah. It wasn't because everybody wasn't working hard. It was just that it is what it is. Right. So we're not going to make our goals. And I was like, and then we are not getting as far as we wanted to be with the house construction because at one point some of the materials were three and 400 times the cost. Wow. And it's like, yeah, cannot order that right now at right. that price. It's going to break us. And then the house won't be affordable yeah. for the family, right? So, so we were making some really tough decisions. And everybody was really like – really tapped out emotionally because when COVID hit, we all, you know, everybody jumped in and said, what can I do to support the community? So we were using our Restore Logistics to help with the food banks organizing Mm -hmm. um, food deliveries. We didn't deliver the food, but we got the volunteers set up. You know, we were saying like, Habitat does housing, but what else can we use? What is our skill set? What is our people set that we can plug in to support the community during this crazy, crazy time? And people were literally working so hard and so long hours of filling in the gaps wherever it was needed. 
And we were just so exhausted. And now I have to give them this, like, okay, we're not going to make the goals that we expected. And we're not accustomed to doing that. Mm -hmm. So, and I was like, you know, it's going to take a miracle. And literally, and and we we joke about putting it out in the the Habitat universe. And then we get a call. So... We, I just said that, and Beth comes in. She goes, Carolyn, you got a minute? I'm like, yeah. She goes, we just got a call from Pinecone and Ann Selke. I said, oh, we don't have a family. Do they want to have the family come in early? To, mm-hmm. do, and she said, no, their their sale got rained out because Memorial Day was a rain out, and they yeah. always have that big annual yeah. sale. They want to donate all that stuff to Restore. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Wow. And they're like, no. I'm like, how much stuff are we talking about? Four Tractor trailer loads. Wow. I was like, okay. First of all, <laughs> it is okay for people to scream, jump up and down. Was there a lot of Praise screaming? God. Yes. Was. Everybody was just like, we got to call Brendan because Brendan wasn't in the room. And we're like, Brendan. Yeah. And he's like, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I was like, yeah. all right. Everybody, like, calm take, down. Take 10. We're going to come back and logistically figure this right, out. Right, right. So we did. We were just, it was like a happy dance. Oh, and when my God. I, and just recently when I was on a call with Ann Selke and Habitat International, I was thanking them because they didn't know that what that did for us emotionally. Oh, my god! Right? Like to go from like feeling so down mm-hmm. to be like euphoric. Wow. and And that was like, this is what we needed to do as human beings to be resilient after yes. such a hard time. And I was like, this is amazing. And then when we started seeing the stuff come in, I was like, I've never seen so many rugs in my entire life. I've never seen so much stuff. And we were able to pivot and set things up. And people, when we put it out on Facebook, it was like hordes. I I think if there had been a, I don't know, like you could only have one person in the store at a time mandate at that time, there would have been a riot in the street because (laughs) it was just like, you know, and it's like everybody's got to be over there. All hands on back because we're rolling out carpets and measuring and whatever. Wow. And it was just amazing. And it ended up having us not only meet our goal, but exceed our goal. And that also gave us the money that we really needed to get two projects off the ground and still finish up four others. Amazing. It was. And the fact that from that interaction and the emails and the correspondence that came back, they were like, we love what Habitat does because they saw what it, like, we're an affiliate. And yeah. we, I'm, I will take a little pride in we're, a, 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 we're above some, um, we're above the norm, mm-hmm. right? Because every affiliate's a little bit different. You okay. um, you kind of meld to what your, com- your community needs. Mm-hmm. And um, in the early days of Habitat, Habitat International would say, oh, Central Berkshire, they're a small but mighty affiliate. And that was the moniker they gave us. And now we they jokingly say, okay, you're an intermediate mighty affiliate. <laughs> I was like, you're oh, like, thanks for the boost. Thanks for the boost. I appreciate that. I was like, I just don't ever want to have to wear the name tag at affiliate conferences where it says large or extra large because it's a size thing, right? <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah, it, it just made all the difference. And we still have some carpets. So, like, what we did is we had said, now be careful. Know, be careful now, Carolyn. You put out the word. I, well, we did because that was in the paper. I know. And and when we put it out on Facebook Saturday, or no, I don't know, whatever day it yeah. was, um, when I got there, and I got there at 9 o'clock, this, th- there was three women saying, oh, I saw it, and I knew I had to get here. And I was like, oh, my. And, and one was, like, sending pictures to her friend in Boston. <laughs> and she's like, hey, can you roll that one out? And we're taking pictures, and we have some up on the website. So even when we're closed, people can shop on our Berkshire Habitat Restore website. Which is pretty awesome. It is. If you haven't been on it, it's, um, what, BerkshireHabitat.org? 
Um, I think it's BerkshireRestore.org. BerkshireRestore.org. Let me tell you, it has like you can take a digital tour yep. and it go. It spans back and forth. You can check out like each section of the room. So you don't even have to leave your house. That's right. And Just, then we, yeah. we actually, you can shop by category. Love it. So, and we're going to be expanding that more over winter because we all know Love that it. sometimes when it's snowy, we don't like to go out to shop. But uh, you can you can order it. You can buy it online. Right now, we have a humongous um, donation of refrigerators. Really? They're like small apartment refrigerators. They'd also be great for a garage. We're selling them for one hundred and thirty dollars, and we have bad. like thirty five of them. Would it um, also be great for college students? Oh yeah, too? definitely college students. They okay. would fit in a. Co- no, they're not the short little the ones. Short. They're the, the taller uh, ones. So the intermediate size. The intermediate size. <laughs> so, but yeah, and and we knew we held some back because usually in the wintertime we'll get a call like, "Hey, our our refrigerator yeah. broke," and these are not like these are not going to be family size refrigerators, no, no. but they could get you through so your food doesn't go bad. That's right. That's right. So. Always need a backup. Yep. Well, one, if you haven't had a chance to get out to the ReStore, I hope you do. Yeah, and it's open Wednesday through Sunday, 9 to 5. There you go. And Carolyn, tell us a little bit about the proceeds from the ReStore. Where do they go? So all the proceeds from the ReStore go directly back to Habitat. Um, and that funds our programs. It funds our home construction. Okay. Um, and also, like... You know, we kind of talked about this. When I came in 2007, I was the only employee. Mm-hmm. So we have nine full-time staff at the at the office, and we have three full-time staff at the ReStore and employ another seven part-time people. Wow. So, yes, we're doing good in building homes, but we're also giving people jobs. And that's a, and th- that's a really important thing right now as that's well. That's right. Absolutely, because we need both to yeah, have a strong community. Do. So, you know, four years ago at a housewarming event, and there have been many, um, but so, but this one is interesting because, um, you know, Habitat, you have a way of sharing good news in newsletters. So mm-hmm. I believe it was in one particular newsletter I saw this. And Sharice, um, it was a um, housewarming event for um, a homo- new homeowner, Sharice mm-hmm. Adams, and um, Representative Trisha Farley Bouvier, um, her remarks at the time, she said, when you work for Habitat, you're not working on a house, you're working on a home. People volunteering together brings out the best in a community, I have always thought Habitat is the best of us. And I like to say that that is one of the truest statements ever because um, I feel like that also symbolizes what the Berkshires is about. It made me think about the don- um, the donation and the partnership between Annie Selke and Habitat and how that symbolizes just how the Berkshires operates in mm-hmm. terms of helping one another. And so when we think about what goes into like the creation of a house. A house is, yes, it's the structure, but it symbolizes so much more. And for homeowners like Ms. Adams um, and others, what have you heard from them when they tell you what their new home means to them? So there are so many stories, and we're really lucky at Habitat because we have a long-term relationship with our homeowners. Mm-hmm. Like, we see them all the time. We talk to them. I randomly will call them to ask them ideas about stuff. <laughs> and, like, the other day I called one of them and said, hey, can I park in your driveway because I'm going to an event at Dewey oh. um, at the park, mm-hmm. and I don't want to have to haul things from the office. And she's like, of course. I'll just make Bobby move his car. Okay. So, you know, it's like that's the kind of relationship, right? right. That's all about relationship building. Yes. And, like, with that particular family, it was the first family that we'd ever built a handicapped home for. 
And Bonnie will always say, thank God for Habitat. Just like we are so thankful for you every day because they were living in a house that after we got their house built, Mm. that house was condemned. Mm. Um, They had had incredible health problems. Like there was not a time that the kids weren't in the hospital for a collapsed lung or something because there was mold growing in the home. (sighs) She had, you know, she's in a wheelchair and she um, had been um, given like hospice care um, bef- and they didn't know if she was going to make it. So she was saying now they're in their house six years and they don't go to the hospital anymore. They, her health is improved. The kid's health is improved. The older, both boys have gone through college. Mm-hmm. The oldest son is working with Crane and Company. And when I was the one that was the reference for the Crane job, she said, I have never had anybody come as prepared as this young man has, because he went through financial education. Right. They worked with a coach. Mm-hmm. They, they knew what they needed to do, because it's not about just providing a new structure for people that want to get out of poverty. Mm-hmm. It's about the transition and the transformation that they do for themselves. Right. We say we offer a huge toolbox, mm-hmm. and they we want to make sure that their toolbox gives them everything to be successful. Right. So part of it is financial education. Part of it is thinking about the future because we see so many times that people will go back to school while maintaining their full-time job, mm-hmm. knowing that that's going to be the next thing that they need to do. Right. And then what I always love is when I hear the stories of what happens next. Mm-hmm. So in, in this family's case, their health is improved, their education's improved, their financial well-being is improved to the point where they knew somebody that was living in their car. And they called up and said, hey, we just want to let you know, not that they needed to tell me, yeah. but they said, we just want to let you know we're taking this young man in because he's living in his car. Mm-hmm. And we want to help give him a start like you guys gave us. And now that kid's graduated from college. He's got a good job. They all think of themselves as one big family. Um and that's what we believe in Habitat. It's about a hand up, not a hand out. Mm-hmm. And then what they take with that hand up, they move that forward and pay right. it forward for other families or the community. And it's just like that's what inspires me so much about this program. It's about how do we give people access to resources? Mm-hmm. How do we give people the tools, the support, the encouragement for them to take the actions that they want for a better future. Okay. And like I, I, the first family I ever worked or second family I ever yeah. worked with, um, it was twin. Uh, the woman had twins. And when they graduated from high school, I got an invitation. Yeah. I was like, I'm getting invited to their high school graduation. I've been to like seven high school graduations. I've yet to be invited to a wedding. Hint, hint, anybody who's listening out there. I know somebody's getting married. I want to be in the invite list for the wedding. Right. Well, I mean, Carolyn, I think that one, I think just everything that you've stated, it points to the fact that the bonds that are created go beyond the pencil and paper mm-hmm. and the instructions and the policy. And it's so important because people want to live their best lives. People want, everyone wants to live their best lives, but they need access to resources and opportunity to do that. Right. And and the other thing I think they need is people that understand that they have value and they bring value to the table. Absolutely. Like when people come to us, we don't start going, here's what we're going to do for you. Right. We say, what do you want to do? What are your gifts of your head, heart, and your Mm -hmm. hands? Because 
that's what they bring to the table. And that's like we always joke around and say, like, when you are building on a habitat site, Mm -hmm. you're not rich, you're not poor because you're all in a T-shirt with paint on it and jeans and you're just working together. So you get to break down those socioeconomic barriers. Sometimes you get to work side by side with somebody that you've never worked with. Mm -hmm. We had a woman that was from... um, I was going to call it the high country, Peru, um, that was um, had applied for Habitat Home Ownership. And she said, I've never worked side by side with a person of color before. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. I, I don't know how to act. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, so you act like a good human being. Right. And we will all learn together. Right. And at the end of one build site, uh, one build season, mm-hmm. they were like best friends. Interesting. And, and like when I was talking, I ran into, not her, I ran into the other person. I said, how's she doing? Yeah. And she said, oh, she's great. She ended up not buying a Habitat house because we we don't say this is the, the guaranteed house you're going to get. Yeah. Right? Like you have to be willing to, to take a chance and mm-hmm. a risk, right? And she had never lived anywhere but in the country. Right. So coming to the big city of Pittsfield, which always cracks right. me up when people say that, like, I don't know if I could do city living. I feel like I'm at Green Acres. Ca- Carolyn, I'm right there with you. I mean, because I, I grew up in the Bronx. So I'm, okay. like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, I'm like, okay. But, you know, so I, I totally get it. But you're right. If you, I always say you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And if you have never been exposed to other people and if your surroundings are homogenous, you're going to reflect that in your perspectives and your thinking, and it's going to also affect your decision-making. So I could see how, in the case of this woman, she probably wanted to go to what was familiar. Yep. But the thing that I loved when she said, you know, I'm I'm not going to finish this up, she said, but I've learned so much more than I knew before. Good for her. And she said, like, like my my views are different, she said, because I didn't know what I didn't know, right. and I had these fears that are so unfounded, and now I know, like I don't have to be afraid of that anymore. Right. So it's just for me, it was just like, and this is why sweat equity and working side by side is so important. But I think even like thinking about what you just said, Carolyn, I'm also thinking about the aspect of. I mean, it's there's the work, of course, but there's the aspect of those conversations mm-hmm. and being in close proximity with people and getting to see, goodness, they're human just like you. They yeah. have dreams. They have desires just like you. They have fears. They have wants. They have needs. And sometimes as a society, all it takes is the space to have those conversations. Yeah. So in that capacity, Habitat offered that space. Yeah. And, that, and we do that every Every time wow. people are building on the job site, we we do team builds for companies, right? So, like Guardian, we love Guardian; mm-hmm. they're one of our great sponsors. And whenever they, before COVID, whenever they would send a team, there would be like twelve of them, and we always do this beginning, this new and good, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. And uh, so people <laughs> would do like their new and good, and they're like, oh my god, like I have worked at the same company with this person for however many years, and I did not know that she's also interested in this. So, like, those friendships happen that, you know, like, when you get out of your silo and your cubbyhole so and necessary. whatever, so that's when personal growth happens. I totally agree with that. And, you know, it's we need more spaces where we can have conversations and learn from each other yeah. so that we can't so that we're not fearful of one another. We need that as a society. Yeah, we, if, we definitely do. You know, um, so one thing is that, like, everyday people really fuel 
habitat. And there was a spotlight a couple of years ago in your one of your newsletters, Building a Better Berkshire. Oh. And it was about um, Robert Korn. And um, he was known to the habitat team as Pennies from Heaven Collector. And he was known to visit Habitat's office with bags of pennies and other forms of mm-hmm. money. And you know, reading about that, he definitely embodied that community spirit. Um, you know, here's my little contribution. Make it go far. Um, one, if you want to just even, you know, share your recollections about Mr. Corn, but other stories that have impacted you in a similar way. Again, um, so many I, I was thinking about, and there's so many that are current. Um, Bob Corn was great. He was just a great guy, and his wife was lovely. And after he passed, he had named Habitat as, you know, instead of flowers to give to Habitat, which is another blessing that we had. And I also was thinking about, we we had called him Big Bob. He was one of our regular volunteers. <laughs> and he, he had passed away last mm-hmm. year. And his wife, um, Merlene, lovely, lovely woman, she'd called to tell me about it, and we would talk and whatnot. And at that time, there was very limited who could be invited to the funeral services, even mm-hmm. though they were outside. And right. she said, if, if Habitat would like to come, I'd be happy to give a spot. And I was like, I would be so honored to be able to go. So the day before, she said, I just, you know, it's not an open casket or anything, but I want you to know something that was really important to Bob. And I said, what she said, that he'd be buried in one of his Habitat T-shirts. Again, getting weepy over here. And um, she said, in that newest one you gave him, because he had a lot of them. (laughs) So she goes on. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. But he volunteered for Habitat for 20 years, building on the job site. I mean, and he volunteered at um, other cultural events and, and whatnot. But he was a person that was always willing to explain things and just a lovely, lovely human being. And when I think about... He's the heart of Habitat. Like, there are so many people that are the heart of Habitat. We have a volunteer that comes in every Tuesday, Marsha. There is nothing we can't ask her to do that she won't do or or try to do. She also is a master gardener. So one day I come in and and she said, I hope you don't mind, but I've redone the front. And and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And, (laughs) you know, I have to have literally rubber fake plants because I am (laughs) – I am not allowed to You're touch not any. Alone, I, yeah, it's like I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and uh, but she's magnificent as well. And then this is a kind of a cool story. We have this volunteer Joakim mm-hmm. that originally came to the Berkshires. Um, he works for Bark, and he originally came to the Berkshires from the Ivory Coast. Mm-hmm. So he's been volunteering at the Restore like 12 to 15 hours a week since last June, and. Every time I would go over to the restore, I'd run into him. He's just a cheerful, happy, happy man. And I happen to have with me um, one of the things that we are um, like a sister city with the Cote d'Ivoire affiliate in Africa. So, yes, I this will kind of I took French, so I should have known this. But when I'm talking to somebody about it, I'm like, hey, look, at we just got the newsletter from them. And they're thanking us because we contributed to them. And he goes, where? And I said, oh, Cote d'Ivoire. He goes, that's the Ivory Coast. And he's, that's where I'm from. And I was like, oh, oh, yes, you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yes. And he was like, so where is the affiliate? And I, I said, you know, I have to, like, I don't know, geographically, yeah. I'll, I'll find out. So I was had a lot on my plate. So he called Habitat International and said, I want to know where the address is yeah. of this affiliate in Cote d'Ivoire. And so he calls me up and he says, Carolyn, I found out where it is. It is only four hours from my 
country or my town yeah. that I grew up in. And when I go back, I'm going to visit that that thing because Habitat is so awesome. And then he said, I wish I could have a Habitat house. And I said, why can't you? And he goes, I could. And I said, well, why don't you do an application? Mm-hmm. I said, come over to the office. Beth will help you or Libby will help you. Sure enough, he comes in with – and he's already got like a bazillion hours of sweat equity. So last month he was presented to the board. The board voted um, on accepting him and another family. Awesome. So they will be buying Gordon awesome. Denny. So um, they will be our – one of our two newest homeowners Ugh. will be – one is from Cote d'Ivoire. One's from Mexico. We have somebody who's from originally from Japan. Um, so our little Gordon Deming is like the UN. Uh, so I, it I'm is. Very excited. And you know that's what I've been saying <laughs> yes, from the beginning. Yes, you have the been call- UN there. You have been calling it the little yeah. UN in Pittsfield. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just like, okay, if we can get maybe a Russian family would be good. That you know, we have two more units that we're looking for homeowners for. But how awesome is it that there is this diversity, right, yeah. in Pittsfield? Again, it goes back to when you live among different people, you get to know them. It breaks down barriers. Yeah. We need more of that. Yeah. We, we need more of do. that. Yeah, definitely do. Oh, Carolyn. Oh, my goodness. We we have so many, so many good things to talk about in our, our time. We have about 10 minutes left, but we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about, um, a year before the pandemic, you mm-hmm. attended an economic policy event and you were later quoted in um, a National Post article um, that basically was titled The Rich Get Richer, Everyone Else Not So Much um, in Record U.S. Expansion. And you stated in part, under-resourced areas are not getting any better. The housing opportunity for them is not getting any better. It doesn't feel like a boom yet. And then COVID hit and mm-hmm. it changed so many things. I think that in the wake of the pandemic, it brought to mind an awareness about the many inequities um, that resulted in the risk for under-resourced communities. Um, Do you think that these insights will help to turn the tide and maybe change things for the better? I hope so, because it's so critical right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're on a housing strategy task force for Berkshire County, and the critical need for housing is countywide. It's and it's not at just at one level. Mm-hmm. It's at all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, we love that we have second homeowners moving yeah. here, but that is driving up the prices for people that are working in nursing homes, right. public servants, Absolutely. social service. Um, we had somebody who's in the fire department that just applied because without Habitat right. and our ability to get prices in an affordable range, right. they would not be able to have an opportunity for homeownership. Right. And in our under-resourced communities in particular, they're paying twelve, fourteen hundred dollars $1,400 to rent places that you and I would just take a quick pass on right. and say, no, but there is no other option. And I think that part of this, and this is the opportunity that we have right now, Mm -hmm. is to do a deep dive into what are the root causes of this. And we know that there are federal housing policies that created the situation that we're in. Right. It is not the local government that said, this is what we're going to do. This was done on a grand scale across the country. And we have to look at that. We have to own it. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out how do we correct this. Right. Because people that live in our neighborhoods deserve to be able to really live there and own that neighborhood and be able to grow and thrive and prosper. And we have to make ways and pathways to make that happen. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that means policy changes. Sometimes it may – and I'm 
I know the tax discussion right now is a little tense. Um, but we have to look at those things, too, right. because people need to be able to afford to live where they work. Mm-hmm. They also need to be able to to own and have wealth generation that many people have been, you know, shut out of. Right. Right. I mean, my my parents not buy. My father was a veteran. He was a Korean veteran, and he did not buy his home until twelve years before he died. What? Yeah, twelve years before he died. Now I was in the mortgage business. I'd be like, Dad, please use the VA benefit. Yeah. But he always felt like, oh, something something will happen, and I'll lose my house. Something will happen, and I'll lose my house. And if I were to calculate out what they paid in rent in that time, they would have been mortgage free if they had done it in a young age. Right. And there, when and I know you know this, but my both my mom and dad just <laughs> passed in August, and um, there was not equity in the house mm-hmm. because they had bought so late and had paid a high price. So there was no wealth generation to be passed on. Right. So the ability for young 30-somethings to be able to own a home so that they can pass it down to their children right. or have equity to pull out when you want to do a startup business. Like we have to think about all of those systems yep. and say like, what? Do, how do we fix all of them? Right. right? It's not just an individual problem or an institutional problem. It's a community problem. And I think we are so incredibly lucky in the Berkshires because we have great minds here. Yes. We have great spirit yes. here. And I think sometimes it's just getting in the room and saying, let's put my interest to the side. Let's look at what is the benefit for all. Right. And when we can do that, we are going to come up with a solution that I believe in the future people are going to be looking at Berkshire County going. They're the ones to follow. They're the ones that you should be looking at for creative, innovative solutions mm-hmm. because they were able to educate themselves. Right. I think education is a critical component right now around right. housing. And then they were able to put processes and strategies into place that move things forward. And the thing that I would also say is having real people at the table right. is critical to that discussion. Absolutely. It can't just be the people that do it every day. It has to be the people that are living it right. because they will know how to fix it. Absolutely. They will have those fresh insights um, and those lived experiences. And I know we're going down to about um, five minutes. <laughs> but Has it been an hour already? I, my, oh gosh, my gosh, Carol, I am not surprised. <laughs> Um, but I want to talk a little bit about work, Berkshire Bridges Working Cities because yeah. we had the pleasure of working together yeah. on that project. And it was about, I remember, maybe six years ago now, we took that yeah. we took that bus ride to Schenectady. Yeah. And that was when we learned about their Bridges Out of Poverty initiative yeah. in Schenectady. And it was like, wow, look at what they're doing out here in Schenectady. You know, maybe we could like have something similar in Pittsfield. And so from that, that bus trip or that van trip, I think we were in yeah. a van. I think we were in a van that yeah. time. <laughs> um, we literally, it, it sort of was like the, the groundwork for yeah. everything to come for what many know today as Berkshire Bridges Work in Cities. And I think many people have heard the name Work in Cities. Not Maybe not everyone will know exactly what goes into it, but mm-hmm. you've heard the name. So if you had to sum up the the impact mm-hmm. of Work in Cities, oh what gosh. would you say? So I would say that what I, I think is the most important thing that came out or is coming out of the working cities is the community conversations mm-hmm. and valuing resident voice. Because I, like you, because you were at that meeting, when we had somebody who stood up and said, it's great that we can get services, mm-hmm. but when you're treated like less than human to get it, that's not great. Right. 
because we saw the impact of what systematic barriers can do to individuals. And I've been in many rooms that's like, why are people so apathetic? Well, if that's how you feel going in, nobody wants to go like, yeah, I think I'll go in and ask for help. Nobody, like no spirit wants to do that. So if we beat people down, we don't build them up, then we're going to replicate what we've had. But what I saw in Schenectady and what I saw um, and still see is the willingness to come together to have – residents at the table to have them have equal power and voice and work together with, um, you know, every time we go to do something new, we bring in community navigators, mm-hmm. they bring in residents, and we say, here's what we're thinking. Tell us what's good. Tell us what's bad. Right. Tell us what could be better. We make a difference because we know that what we're designing is going to work for the people we're designing it for. That's right. And then the other thing that I love is the relationships mm-hmm. and the collaboration. I mean, we all had to go to Boston. Well, How many times? Oh, we, we did. That, we were like the, the travel team. <laughs> we were. Um, and But you built up an understanding about each other. You Like, I will say that there is not one person on that bus if I – called them and said, I am personally having a problem that they would not have my back. Right. Right. And that's what the Berkshires can do. Yes. It's like working together, listening to the people that we serve, and then building a structure that fixes those problems. We're going to have a slam dunk. And then the other awesomest thing is our community navigators. That's Those right. people with lived lived experience that are trusted in the communities right. that connect people to resources. Because God knows during COVID... There were a lot of systems that had to be navigated and having people that know how to do it. Yes. And they would they would help you do it. They would check in on you to do it. But most importantly, they would teach you how to do it yourself. That's right. And that's, that's what, what people want. That's what people want. They, they don't want, want somebody to have to that's right. do it for them. That's they right. want to be able to be self-advocating. And so I think that the longest impact that we're going to have is the collaboration and the community navigator program. And we have Spanish-speaking community navigators. Yes. We have, and we're going to be expanding our community navigator program because we just got a grant from Chapa. Yes. Um, so we're really excited about that. But I think that you know I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be applying for some ARPA money for continuing that work. But I think that that's the you know that collaboration and the building of trust between residents and systems has been the takeaway. It's so important, and you're absolutely right, Carolyn. So <clears throat> now that we're closing out, <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me, um, if you had to choose one word to describe yourself, what would that word be? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I would say driven. Okay. Because when I see something that needs to be done, mm-hmm. I will figure out a way to get it done. And that's the way my team is, too. It's like we call ourselves Team Tenacious. Like when people go, oh, that can't be done. It's like, no, it's not. We can't. It can't be done. Right. It's like, how can we get it done? Like, that's right. That's the, way, that's the way the world gets things done. Right. Is you can't just go, oh, that's too big of a problem. Can't right. do anything about it. No. You dig in. You're driven. You get the work done. But you do it with love and grace. I love it. I love it. Carolyn. Thank you so much for Thank a heartwarming conversation. Yeah. Impactful. I learned so much about you, and I hope our listeners did as well. Everyone, you've been listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on WTBRFM with Roberta McCulloch Dews of the Mayor's Office in the city of Pittsville. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Mm-hmm.